Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Um, so, Amber, just wanted to, you know, often before we get into the guts of the show, Bill and I will digress about sports or something. That does happen. And I just want you to know, today is the first day of the men's and women's college basketball tournament. Uh, I am aware of that because... Andrew, my husband. Right, but I just want to tell you, I'm even though I'm talking about it now, I'm only talking about it to say that I'm not going to talk about it because Wait. Uh, I don't watch college basketball. Amber, I have more good news. I also don't watch college basketball. So you're fine. Guys, this is, this is one that my husband does watch, and I might actually know things about. Well, here we so are. So the one time. Talking well, about not talking about you it. Want, you want, I mean, the you floor the is floor yours. for a little while? I, yeah. No, this makes me Some feel very takes? uncomfortable. Is, I, can't, is, I don't have is sports takes. Is West Virginia in the tournament? I can't don't know. have sports takes. Uh, I don't think West Virginia is in the tournament. I wrote a big thing about all the trademark lawsuits oh, that the okay. tournament-ranked schools have filed, and West Virginia wasn't in there. So Tough tough year for the Mountaineers. Sorry. I'm also happy, by the way, something I've noticed uh, among the other podcasts I listen to that uh, we didn't give in to the pressure or the gravity of doing um, like bracket-based segments. Oh, right. No. Hate that. Like, um, like we could have done. You know, I get it though that. because oh, no, so I many get, things oh, I fit get into it. the rubric. It's a cult. It's a cultural yeah. magnet. Like mm-hmm. I understand it, but like I'm like I'm forever tapping the 15 second forward button on that. Like we sure. could have done bracketology of crimes. We could have, or of law firm names, or anything. People might be doing that right now. Either way, that's a good point. You know? I mean, no, no shade except. A lot of shade to uh, to those people. But, well, before um, anybody 15 seconds ahead on that's this That's a good point, podcast, yes. Let's get into the meat of our show today. The, yeah. real, the real good stuff. Yeah. And um, Speaking of crimes. A, we have a lot of good audio in this segment, which sort of drove this segment. We're going we're gonna to do, before the interview, we're going to do sort of one focus, um, which was... So, we'll just start by saying I've been to a good number of... of Oral arguments. We all listen to them a lot here yeah. at Law 360. Uh, what we're about to play and talk about is like the most hostile I've ever seen a set of judges. Yeah. I've ever uh, heard a set of judges. It's, it was, it's some good stuff. So uh, there was that uh, emoluments case that was filed against President Trump claiming that um, his decision to hold on to his businesses essentially violated a, a, an anti-corruption clause in the Constitution called yeah. the emolument clause um and uh the case had been chugging along fairly well for a little while and um got to oral arguments this week and it did not go well well let's talk more about what the case is about before we start playing clips from the argument so where what court were were we in what's sort of the background yeah getting us up to the argument so the background is that there's this um like I said, it's a constitutional provision called the Emoluments Clause. Um, prevents it's pretty obscure. <laughs> this is the first yeah. time it's ever anyone's ever sought to have it judicially enforced. Mm-hmm. Um, it bars government officials from accepting gifts or emoluments yeah. from foreign agents. Um, uh, back in 2017, the attorneys general of Washington D.C. and Maryland both sued Trump, claiming that um, you know. Retaining his businesses, particularly his hotels, uh, amounted to sort of this ready avenue for him to be given gifts by foreign people. Yeah. The, the idea that. Yeah, because like people would want to book hotel rooms in the Trump Hotel. Foreign and... heads of state, uh, you know, other officials, things like Completely. that. Completely. Yeah. He, he has a very high end hotel right down the road where people can go and give him, I mean, essentially just give him thousands of dollars. So right. it that's they said that that violated the, that that provision. 
Um, like I said, pretty novel case. Um, I mean, in a, I, I would say in a in a saner political environment, this would be like a pretty like it like front page story, like almost every other week or something. But it's gone a little bit under the radar. Right. But it's a huge it's a huge issue. Like you say, it's never made it this far or even been tried in a courtroom. So how do we get to where we are today? So a trial judge um, hearing the case uh, basically said. Limited the case a lot, got rid of a lot of the claims, yeah. um, but said for for your hotel on, I think it's on Pennsylvania It's on Pennsylvania Avenue. Yeah. Yeah. It's the old post office if you've ever been to D.C. Uh, I'm going to let the case move forward toward discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, the DOJ said that that was so sort of egregious that, that, you know, that the president should not be able to be sued in his official capacity for this at all. Yeah. Um, that they filed a uh, petition for a writ of man- mandamus, um, which is, you know, it's not a regular appeal. It's sort of like a trial court did something so screwy that we yeah. need emergency relief, um, taking it to the Fourth Circuit. So that's where we are now. Um, and oral arguments were on Tuesday. And like I said, the judges were not. Let's just say it was fun to watch all the news coverage where everyone tried to find like polite news speak ways. So they're they like, judges are skeptical of claims. Euphemism. It went, it went much, much further than skepticism. Okay. Well, we're going to hear from them in just a second. But I think we need one more sort of bucket of setup for people to really understand what they're going to hear and that's the players like who's in it like what judges are we talking about right the panel itself did not set this lawsuit up for much success um the it was two of the more conservative members of the fourth circuit um judge dennis shed and judge paul niemeyer um and then the third judge on the panel was a brand new trump appointee um marvin quattlebaum which is a Fun name to say. Great judge name. Great any name. Doesn't really have yes. anything to do with the story, but just like saying it. Um, <laughs> it can't go unremarked upon. Uh, so I thought there was a really great piece of color from, uh, I think it was a Politico story, and from the coverage of, of this hearing. So the Fourth Circuit, I've covered oral arguments of the Fourth Circuit in Richmond, um, and they only announce the panel, like right, right, right before the oh, the hearing. And um, so the Maryland attorney general, apparently when they announced the hearing, he literally like slapped his forehead with his palm (laughs) and the these guys and the D.C. attorney general came up to him was like, head up. Keep your head up, man. Yeah. Wow. Um, And so like like they were very like once the tone once you saw who was hearing who was going to be doing it, it was pretty clear it was going to go. Tough. That's kind of I, I. That's this is a digression. I didn't know that. That's kind of wild when you consider like preparing your case and. Well, I don't. Th- I, I don't want to speak on this because I don't know for yeah. sure. But I, I know in other courts, it's not like it's way far in advance. Okay. Um, it, you know, it's not like I don't think they view that as like a substantive thing that you're entitled to know. Yeah. Um, it, it, but it, it does create this interesting scenario when you find out it's like ah well day of yeah yeah see how it goes <laughs> yeah uh, okay so so uh, the, <laughs> like I said it it was a it was a tough slog for the. Um, uh, the attorney for the emolument plaintiffs. Yeah. Um, first one we want to bring up is uh, there. So the judges were the um, the solicitor general for D.C. was um, was arguing the case for the challengers. Her name was um, uh, Lauren Ali Khan, and um, they were peppering her with questions about um, what kind of remedies the case would seek if they won. Yeah. Um, saying like, is the only way for the president to avoid these kind of like is the only way, thing that a court can do force the president to divest himself of of everything he owns? Um, so she sort of pushed back. She said, "No, there. You know, he can put his maybe a blind trust would work. Maybe just yeah. a declaratory judgment that you know that he was violating it and that he, that he shouldn't anymore." Yeah. Um, but they seemed very highly skeptical of those, and they seemed to think that the only way that this could happen is if he divested everything, which brought us to Judge Shedd bringing up 
uh, the president's role in The Apprentice. Theory, don't you have a concern that those hotels and other things, in fact, is I think you even want him fired from The Apprentice, don't you? Didn't you ask for that? Uh, I don't believe so. Is I the think you did. Still yes, on? you did. You huh. certainly did. You asked that he get rid of The Apprentice. So yeah. you want him fired from The Apprentice, too. But at any rate, but at any rate, if he puts stuff in a blind trust, he's still going to benefit from what foreign dignitaries or whoever you say would be prohibited would do for that trust while he's president. Well, for starters, he's not currently hosting The Apprentice. Right, right. So it's rooted in the the lawsuit originally did. The complaint did say that uh, if because Trump still controls the uh, residual rights to to The Apprentice um, or his role in The Apprentice, um, that if they were sold to a far like a state broadcaster in a foreign country, that could be a way that that the sitting president was getting money from a foreign head of state. Like I said, most of the lawsuit was paired from earlier in the case, and yeah. those cases, those claims are no longer involved. And and as Amber said, he's no longer the host. So the judge seemed pretty eager to just kind of get a fired apprentice joke slash jab in there, and yeah. then didn't didn't really seem too concerned with the details on that one. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's and, and that was you know that was fairly early in in her testimony, so um, didn't bode well for the for the for the rest of it. Yeah. Um, the next thing that that happened that I think is worth noting is um, they were continuing to push her on what kind of relief the case could right. seek. Um, and like I said, one of the sort of less extreme options that she floated was um, a declaratory judgment that the the president is doing this and it is against the law. Yeah, um, it is violating the Constitution. Um, shed again the same judge um sort of out of the blue seemed to then take that and accuse her of seeking a declaration for something much much different than just winning the lawsuit and by the way do you think if you got a declaration you would want a declaration of the uh violation of the emoluments clause a declaration that he's violating the emoluments clause would be very do you powerful. think that would be the basis for a high crime and misdemeanor for impeachment that declaration i don't believe so. I think a declaration that what he's okay. doing is is violating the emoluments clause and an injunction to not do so, and then we can. But you don't stage, even know. You don't even know. You filed the lawsuit, and you don't even know what relief, real, actual, real world relief you think would satisfy your claim of violation. I believe it depends on. Just just escalating to impeachment. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, a great. Exa- I think it's a great example of like you know, there's one, it's one thing to to have really tough questioning, and like we said, this is a very sure. novel lawsuit, and it maybe yeah. it, maybe it doesn't have merits. But yeah. there were a lot of moments like that when you're listening to the hearing where you're like, you're sort of accusing one side of like improper motive in a lot of ways. Yeah, the, the, um, he stopped just short of saying like. Like you're trying to get the president impeached, yeah. Even though that's not relief they've sought, and it's not even the job of the it's the job of Congress, as everybody knows. But yeah, um, gives you an idea of of the kind of temperament inside the court there. Yeah, and I should also say, um, because we sort of set this up as all of the judges were fairly skeptical. We've been playing a lot of Judge Shed just because he was giving the best sound bites, but um, really all three of the judges were sort of asking tough questions, particularly um, Judge Niemeyer. Mm-hmm. Um, the third judge was pretty quiet, the junior member on the on the panel, um, but also asked some, some pretty tough questions. Okay. Um, the third thing we want to get to is um, a reference to another case involving President Trump. And again, sort of an escalation from the, the pure sort of facts of the case. Um, uh, 
they were talking about again how you would how you would sort of enforce um, uh, a, a ruling that the president was violating the emoluments clause by by maintaining this hotel, and the judge started asking if this was just a ban on foreign people at President Trump's. Oh no, hotel. I see where this is going. Sounds and like then, the travel ban, guys. <laughs> and then and then and then we got this. And so let me just get this straight. So if he then said. A little reminiscent of the travel ban. No foreigners can stay in any of my properties. How long before the state of Maryland sue him for discrimination? So it's not that no foreigners; it's no foreign governments. The domestic I, I know, but he might take the clauses. stand that I can't. I don't know about foreign. How he chooses to comply with a declaration that he's violating the constitution. So what is you want to do though is make it a guessing stage. game for him. I, I do not want it to be a guessing game, Judge Shad. What I would like it to be. Yeah, it's very testy. It's clearly they're getting very testy with each other, um, including the that's, yeah the attorney who's speaking back to the judge, saying like, "No, no, that's not what I'm asking right. for." Right, brutal, oh. brutal day at the office for uh, the D.C. Solicitor General. Yeah, I don't even. I'm trying to like, he's he's both expressing his skepticism about the nature of this relief they're seeking, and then also saying he says he's like, "Okay, if you tell if you say." You know, he should issue a rule saying no foreign dignitaries can stay at his hotels. Like, well, he could do whatever he wants then. Yeah, he <laughs> also like... seems to make it sound like um, there's no way to know if a foreign person is a dignitary or not. Oh, yeah. How would he know? Yeah. Uh, Which, you know. Yeah. I mean, you could see them, like, disappearing down the rabbit hole of, like, uh, you know, contentious and often circular arguments sure. about, like, about what's about what's a proper remedy and whether the remedy could then, like... I mean, I think, like, what we've been circling around with a litigation. lot of this stuff is... Um, this is such a novel case that yeah. it does sort of invite this line of like, you well, we've vacuum. never had to do this before. So right. what is proper? What's not proper? And we're playing a lot of clips that are, you know, uh, they, they they get to some really funny places, some sort of outlandish places. But there is a central question. Like, it's hard to tell what a proper remedy would be here. Yeah. Right. Completely. So two more highlights that we wanted to get to. The, the, the first of them is... It's interesting because it hits on the fact, like we've talked about on the show, sort of the unique challenges that a a business person becoming the president the way that Trump did poses to all the sort of normal structures that we're used to. So here they're talking about the kind of normal investments that that most previous presidents have had um, and whether or not finding that, that this kind of stuff is a violation of the Emoluments Clause, whether or not that would make sort of illegal for people like Trump to become president. He is out there representing that he would like foreign and domestic governments to come and stay, that he likes them very much when they do. And he's also hired a director of diplomatic sales targeted at getting this business. This is not passive. Doesn't your theory of emoluments, it really is a protection for career politicians who want to be president because they don't have generally any business that they've grown that's associated with them. What they have might be career politicians, might be interest and all that they can put in a blind trust. So for those people, maybe it's not surprising Maryland and D.C. feel this way, the governments, they they don't have any emolument problem under your theory. But anybody who has grown something successfully or has business interests, they absolutely do have an emolument problem. Yeah, it's. I mean, we've been we've said a couple of times how the law has never been explored, and now it's like, okay, the first time we're really going to explore it, we're exploring it with someone who like is like, 
like has like an explosive amount of like right. you know investments and business interests elsewhere. It's like this is like the like definitive way to test it. Yeah, and then and so just to stick with the theme of comparing the Trump presidency to other administrations and how that the emoluments clause might apply to them, we'll end on a interesting note where. Judge Shedd started referring to President Obama's book and the idea that if that book had been sold to foreign libraries, would would that have amounted to a violation of this constitutional provision? Why didn't you sue, under your theory, President Obama? So I have a few responses to that, Judge Shedd. First, whether or not that was an emoluments clause violation requires a lot of facts that we don't know. Whether or not those were sold to foreign libraries. But you could allege. Whether those foreign libraries were. Yeah, but you could allege that. Some of what you allege and speculate. And it I'm just very... wondering if it's so important, why did it? Why wasn't that, but you haven't abandoned that reliance theory, why wasn't that used? I don't think we're going to leave the segment uh, with our listeners having any big mystery about how this uh, was going for the case no it seems it seems like all three of them sort of had their their mind made up um but it's very interesting to hear the actual arguments in such a novel uh, part of the law that hasn't been explored well and i think anyone who isn't a you know an appellate litigator probably hears this and it's the the really tough questioning i don't think is particularly novel it's just the level of like straight up we don't believe you kind of kind of tone i think really really set the hearing apart from from other ones litigation is languishing judges are burned out and attorneys are avoiding federal courts. According to new reporting by Law360, there are just not enough judges on the federal bench to do the work, and it's forcing courts to come up with some creative ways to cope. Here to talk about it is Features reporter Kara Bayless. Hi, Kara. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me on. So you did some great reporting about yeah. just how bad things are getting in terms of filling up the federal judicial ranks. Can you tell us more about the problem? Well, since the last significant batch of federal judges was created, uh, the bench hasn't grown very much, right? It's grown by about 4% since 1990. Mm -hmm. um, but in that same period of time, caseloads have grown by more than 38%. Oh, mm. yeah. big gap. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, I mean, but the thing is that that's over the course of 29 years, right? Um, so it hasn't happened overnight. And so I spoke to one judge in Arizona, uh, Judge Snow. He's the chief judge out there. And he was saying that he kind of compared it to like a frog in the boiling vat of water, right? right? If you throw it in, it'll freak out. But if you slowly bring it up by a couple of degrees at a time, right. it just kind of becomes the new normal. But just to frame it, I mean, in the in the because you mentioned over the, 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 the last 30 or so years, but over the 30 years that preceded that, they created hundreds of judgeships, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. About every five to six years, Congress was passing, you know, on average, about 66 judges at a time. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so we've reached a real tipping point, it sounds like. Can you tell us more about what it's like in some of these districts where you talk to judges and people in the system, it seems like uh, there was some disparity between, say, a Hawaii and a, a busy district in California. Yeah. I mean, I, 
a good example would be Hawaii has four judges, right? And so does Delaware. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Delaware, you know, is where everybody wants to incorporate because the corporate laws are so friendly out mm-hmm. there. Right. Um, so obviously a lot more cases come out of that because they're all headquartered in Delaware. Exactly. Yeah. So a judge in Delaware has four times the weighted caseload of a judge in Hawaii. And let, let's talk about a little bit more. I mean, now that we have an understanding of how serious the the problem is, how has it manifested itself? I mean, obviously we can surmise that things have slowed down, trials have slowed down, proceedings have slowed down, but what were people saying when you were talking to them about this? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, the, it's tricky because it it manifests itself differently in different places, sure, like we were just saying, right? Uh, so um, in the Western District of New York, for example, it takes uh, five years for a ca- civil case from to go to trial from filing. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's a significant lapse, right? Uh, and the way the different uh, courts are handling it too is very different. So in the Eastern District of California, um, I spoke to the chief judge there. He said that uh, he's never in the courtroom, right? He's just trying to get filings out um, as yeah. quickly as possible. Uh, whereas in the Southern District of Florida, uh, they're constantly in court. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In terms of uh, you know attorneys and and litigants themselves, what are we seeing in terms of the way that um, you know I have to think there's some some you know reactive behavior to the to this kind of yeah. Do people slowdown. just not want to go to federal court because they're like, oh, it's going to take years? Yeah, definitely. There are some pe- some attorneys I spoke to said they're avoiding federal court because of the delay. Um, others, some plaintiffs' attorneys said that. Uh, defense attorneys tend to favor federal court not only because the rules uh, are a little more defendant friendly there, but also because uh, the delay can work to their advantage, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a big corporation, you're being sued by someone who really needs the money. uh, Maybe you can just wait it out until... A lengthier proceeding would benefit you. And what about the judges themselves? I know you, you spoke to Judge Alsup, who we've talked about a lot on the show, and some other judges. I mean, it's their domain. It's their, They're the ones sort of at the forefront of the problem, them and their staff. What are they doing? Right. Well, um, I mean, first of all, a lot of judges are just feeling really burnt out. Sure. Uh, Judge O'Neill in uh, the Eastern District of California, he was he's going to retire soon. And he's not going to stay active. He just he said, I can't do it. I'm he's too not taking exhausted. on senior status or anything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's just retiring. Um, okay. And he said, you know, he he understands firsthand because he's chief judge there that there's a loss of uh, not only experience and wisdom, but also uh, the someone who has the experience of managing a heavy yeah. right. caseload like that. Right. Yeah. Um, and then there are some extreme examples. You mentioned Judge Alsa. Um I was I was the court reporter in San Francisco when that when the shootout it used to be called a shootout hearing. Okay. Uh, and when that was invented, he just uh, you know he had this huge patent litigation that he was staring down the barrel of, and uh, he it just kind of occurred to him during this case management uh, conference and. Judge Alsop is a real character. He's yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why we've talked about him on the show many times. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so what exactly did he have people do? Explain that shootout concept. So um, basically, each side brings its best gun, right? It's, right. Okay. Its best claim, either, either for infringement uh, or invalidity. And uh, they, they have this uh, mini uh, summary judgment hearing. Um, where they each make their argument and he sort of decides the winner of that 
shootout at the Alsip mm-hmm. Corral, right? And Anything to analogize patent litigation to like old westerns <laughs> is like definitely definitely okay I mean, with me. I, this is a serious problem, but that's I'm all for it because people act like patent <laughs> litigation is not super exciting, but you're here to prove them wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But you had a, I mean, that, but that doesn't come out of nothing. You had a really great little anecdote in your story about Alsup. Didn't you, he was the one who said, "Oh yeah, there's just like there's reams, boxes of evidence." Like he said, they're piled up around his his desk like an igloo. Right. Yeah. He's, right. Got, he's course, just like yeah. he's got claims to go over and all this stuff. So I mean, it's a logical outgrowth. Of that. And other judges have. You had one. Th- thing in your story about judges literally saying like call your senators you should oh yeah yeah. right we need we need more judges yeah yeah uh judge o'neill in uh in the eastern district of california always puts that at the beginning of every order he puts (laughs) out yeah well he does that for a reason right didn't you report that he puts that specifically because he says he's only going to issue decisions on the things that were critical to to deciding that case like no side issues are going to get touched at all Mm -hmm. nothing that wasn't a hundred percent germane to what he had to do only what he needs to decide yep. the issue before him well and we're i mean we kind of said that as like a joking thing call your senators i mean it's unusual for a judge to like make any kind of right. sort of like political like i mean that's the right. job is to be an independent judiciary but the idea of like lobbying for judicial expansion we maybe talk about that a little bit is definitely noteworthy well that's i mean i think that's a great way to sort of segue segue us into the idea of like how how did this happen and why is no one fixing it? I mean, it seems like... They used to like doing it, as we said. Well, we talked a ton yeah. about the idea of neither side wants to confirm the other side's nominees. Sure. And, and I mean, is this an outgrowth of that, of just the, the gridlock that we that we can't get more judgeships created in sort of the current environment? Yeah, I think it's partisanship. And, you know, I talked to senators and congressmen on both sides of the aisle, and it was about the only thing they could agree on is the fact that partisanship is the problem. Yeah. That's an interesting Super chicken depressing. or the egg thing because we're as we're going to talk about. I mean, it's, it's it's you're saying okay, they they both agree that it's a problem and it's a partisan problem, but it's not like there's been a shortage of attempts to fix it, right? What's like what's been the sort of how have people tried? How have lawmakers tried to fix it? And what's happened to those efforts? Yeah, I mean, uh, we counted. We sat and counted since 1990, and there have been... Like all good data reporters, you counted. <laughs> that's <laughs> so right. That's good. That's right. Well, it wasn't just me. I had, I had several people checking that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the project turned out great. I hope everybody reads it. But yeah. yeah thank um, you. Um, but yeah, it was uh, 134 attempts wow. to add to the bench. Like distinct pieces of legislation. That's to right. The, wow. since, 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 since when? Since, since 1990, 19... when the last judicial omnibus creating 69... Right. Uh, new judges uh, passed. So over 130 new tries and nothing. They well, got nothing out of four. There are okay. three, I'm sorry, three. Uh, there were three that passed, but okay. but the biggest one added 12 to the bench. Okay. Yeah, so, so it's like more winnowed or progress. We were talking about this off the air, but it, I mean, it makes sense for both sides. It's not. I'm not saying it's the right result, but if you see the other side doing this when they're in power, you're like, it looks like they're trying to pack the bench. They're trying to give right. themselves a bunch of new judgeships to fill. And in an environment where, like we said, where we, where people already don't want to fill the vacant ones that, that exist, it's it's hard to see a way that anyone would want to create this for the other party. Well, where do we take it next? I mean, you, you said that there have been many attempts to add new judges. Is there anything that could get at what Bill's talking about? Any um, pieces of legislation that would cut through this partisanship? Yeah. Uh, well, there was a bill that um, got out of committee last oh session. I know. <laughs> Sounds like I a big uh, accomplishment. In it. Yeah. Our producer just fainted. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and uh, it was called the Room Act. It was based on these recommendations. We just so sort of the impetus for this story, right, was that these new recommendations came out uh, last week from the uh, Judicial Conference of mm-hmm. the United States, okay. asking for. Uh, I think it's 73 total new permanent district court judges. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and uh, so there was a, a hearing last year and a bill last year based on the 2017 numbers. They come out every two years. Um, and uh, they the bill made it out of committee. And uh, the way that they were able to make that happen was that there was this markup hearing. It was a Republican, not surprisingly, it was Republicans proposed the bill, right? Mm -hmm. Because then President Trump would, one would assume, uh, fill those new vacancies that the Mm -hmm. bill would uh, create. Um, And uh, it made it out of committee after the Democrats made it so that it wouldn't uh, go into effect until after the next presidential election, okay. right? So okay. it kind of makes it blind and nonpartisan. Um, there's this group called Fix the Court, um, and they uh, just came out yesterday, Wednesday, um, mm-hmm. with a proposal that would uh, sort of break it down so that all these new recommendations that came out last week uh, would be implemented over the course of several, I think it's two decades, uh, so that it could, you know, span several administrations. So they would At like regular like, intervals, yeah, you like appoint however X many judges Five judges years. this year, Seems like a two more years later, five more, that exactly. kind of thing. Sure. More exactly. reasonable plan than just getting rid of political gridlock <laughs> doesn't seem like a thing Does that's going to happen anytime more soon. achievable yeah. yeah um well we'll watch to see i think what comes of these bills and others and thanks so much for putting together this report i think everyone should go to our website and check it out it's really eye-opening about what's going on around the nation yeah thank you for having me in our show with something offbeat, and Alex, you brought a lawsuit to talk about today. I, I brought a lawsuit to talk about today, I'll tell you what. Um, you may have seen it uh, in the papers and elsewhere. Congressman Devin Nunes, Republican from California, um, something of a Trump loyalist, right. big critique of the Mueller probe. Um, when, the, when the Republicans had the House, he was the head of the, um, the House Oversight Committee, so he was, you know, had, had a lot of skin in the Mueller probe. Um, Went really hog wild in Virginia state court this week. Um, he filed a defamation lawsuit against Twitter, uh, you know, okay. the website Twitter. Never heard of it. Uh, for allowing two parody accounts, two Devin Nunes parody accounts, to ridicule him and make fun of him. Uh, and all he asks, and all he asks for in recompense, is for the accounts to be deactivated and uh, a meager two hundred and fifty million dollars in damages. Two hundred and fifty million dollars in damages. Seems fair. Well. Right off the bat, these are parody accounts, and that seems crazy, but tell us more about the accounts and why he's so upset. Yes. Um, so the two accounts in question um, are pretending to be Devin Nunez's mom. Okay. That's at Devin Nunez mom, and then uh, at Devin Nunez cow, because he has some he has some farms, some some land. Gotcha. He has a dairy farm. He has dairy like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Family dairy farm. Yeah. Um, so it's Devin Nunez mom and Devin Nunez cow. Um, these are, if you spent any amount of time on Twitter, you know these are sort of transparently trollish accounts um, that we've all seen. And they tweeted a lot at Nunez and about Nunez. Um, 
various crude things about sort of his role in the Mueller investigation, um, his own legal troubles in California. Like he has a he has a wine uh, he has a winery that's entangled in some litigation, and they basically would pepper him with like really you know mean tweets um, and ridiculing him about stuff. This is from also it's very funny because like in the filing. They mention like Devin Nunes' mom, and then on second reference, they call like the the plaint the the defendant is Devin Nunes' mom. So it's like in her endless barrage of tweets, Devin Nunes' mom maliciously attacked every aspect of Nunes' character, <laughs> honesty, integrity, ethics, and fitness to perform his duties. Um, falsely falsely claimed that Nunes was wanted and and hiding, and that he hopes not to get indicted. Um, even falsely stated that Nunes has herp face. So it gets pretty huh. dark. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff is like herp face, huh? Very vile, very repulsive. Um, sexual stuff is like often like bordering on like homophobic stuff. So it and all very, sounds very unpleasant. like you know when people talk about the worst of Twitter, this is the kind of stuff they have in mind. Like yeah. when when it's things I mean, that are like pretty aggressively. I mean, bad, I would right? say there's, there's worse. There's stuff worse. On they 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 importantly they stop short of like physical threats of violence and stuff okay. like that. Um, it's a lot of it's just ba- it's basically in poor taste, but right? Like, on the flip side, it's none of these are um, tricking people into thinking it's Devin Nunes himself, right? They're very clearly parody accounts. I would, well, I yeah. don't know. I th- I thought it was the cow when I when I. <laughs> well, I mean, look, is, if this isn't a tweet from Devin Nunes's mom, I don't know. Devin Nunes, your district is looking for you. Are you trying to obstruct a federal investigation again? You come home right this instant or no more Minecraft. <laughs> that's an action. That's the, all, all, by the way, all these tweets are reprinted in the complaint. Um, right. It's a hilarious complaint. It goes on for pages and pages. Um, but honestly, uh, the blowback to the lawsuit itself has far outstripped, I think, the magnitude of the tweets you know, themselves. It's this kind of thing where... Um, if you want people to not notice and not talk about a thing that bugs you, maybe don't file a public lawsuit about it. You heard a lot of discussion this week about something called the Streisand effect, and that oh, is sure. exactly the effect you're talking about. The idea of if you try and silence something or stifle something, you have the opposite effect. You actually amplify it and draw more attention to it. Um, so Nunes has found himself in that position. Um, we've talked before. Yeah. I mean, it's just like the... The adult version of like, just ignore your brother. He'll stop picking bit. on you yeah. if you just ignore you hear him. You that a lot with the with the Twitter. Yeah, trolls. but if you if you hit back at your brother, he doesn't get like three hundred thousand more Twitter followers. <laughs> That's a great point. Now, True. I mean, if, if this isn't the Streisand effect in action, I don't know what is. Both these accounts had around a thousand followers when we just started recording here. The the cow had over five hundred thousand followers. Wow, um, which is more than Nunes himself. He's got about two hundred thousand. Um, I don't even know if we need to get into a sophisticated legal analysis here. Nah. This suit goes nowhere. We've talked can, about can confirm. Yeah, we don't. I mean, you, you're, you. We've talked about sort of the media and First Amendment and stuff like that. I mean, the protections for criticizing public figures is are pretty well ingrained in our system, and that includes mockery and satire. Um, sure. Larry Flint went to the Supreme Court about stuff like this. So, you know, it's pretty transparently political. Nunes went on Fox News and was like, this is the first of many. So, uh, <laughs> oh, he's going to sue other. Yeah, other Going to find all the against... people saying mean stuff about me on the web. I yeah. mean, it's a surefire and again, way there will for be us to continue talking about it. It just doesn't seem like a good strategy. Last bit of news that we can get out of here. Someone pointed out that during the last Congress, uh, Nunes was a co-sponsor of a piece of legislation called Discouraging the Frivolous Lawsuits Act. Which I'll just uh, I'll just leave uh, so going, without commentary. Going against the spirit of that one. Didn't get passed into law, but uh, there you have it.
That'll wrap up today's show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our guests this week, Kara Bayless. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. That's also where you can find the deep dive into what's going on on the federal bench. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. And if you like it, please leave us a review. It helps other people find our show. Thanks, and see you again next week.